Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. I think one of the greatest gifts human beings have is a sense of curiosity. This ability to question things around us, to learn things, why things are the way they are, pushes us forward. Here are my three favorite questions that I think everybody should ask. Number one, are we alone in the universe? Number two, who really killed JFK? And number three, and this one is near and dear to my heart, what do dogs dream about when they twitch in their sleep? But there are plenty of questions that we don't ask that we probably should. Let me give you a few examples. When a prisoner is about to be executed by lethal injection, why does the doctor swab the IV site with alcohol first? Why doesn't Tarzan have a beard? And how about this? And don't tell me that you haven't thought about it. What's the size of a fart? So you see what I mean? These are questions that probably should have answers. Uh, and if you must know uh, the fart thing, it ranges between the size of a bottle of nail polish and a soft drink can. You're welcome. After discussing important stuff like this with some friends, I got to thinking, can we find the same sorts of unasked questions in the world of music? Well, it turns out we can. This is stuff that we should be curious about. And are there answers to these questions? Should there be answers? Let's find out. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. From 2000, that's Collective Soul with a song called Why Part 2, which I think is a pretty good introduction to what's coming up. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and I call this show Music Questions That People Almost Never Ask. Maybe you've never thought about any of these things, but when you hear the question, you'll go, yeah, why is that? To show you what I mean, let's dive right in with this one. The official keeper of music charts in North America is Billboard magazine. This is where we find the Hot 100 singles, the Top 200 album charts, and a couple of dozen specialty charts for dance, alt-rock, hip-hop, and so on. Billboard is one of the big bibles of the entire music industry. 
But why is it called Billboard? I mean, it's a music magazine and organization. It has nothing to do with any kind of outdoor advertising. So what's the deal with the name? Here's the answer. Billboard was established in 1894, years before what we would call the modern music industry was established. Its original name was Billboard Advertising, and its first job was covering advertising and the posting of bills. Back then, long before radio and television, the primary means of advertising was in newspapers and the posting of ads in public spaces, you know, flyers, posters, and billboards. From there, the magazine moved on to covering county fairs, circuses, vaudeville, and burlesque show, and the kind of advertising those things did and the gossip those industries generated. This got the magazine into the entertainment industry. But then in the early 1900s, when sales of phonographs and pre-recorded discs and records began to take off, billboard advertising started taking an interest in that. What records were selling the most? They covered the jukebox industry and tracked which records received the most plays. Then they started looking at what records were being played on the radio. And by the time the Depression arrived, Billboard was focusing most of its energies on music. And then on January 4th, 1936, the magazine published its first ever music chart. That was followed by more charts, which ranked the best-selling records in America. And by the 1950s, Billboard was the industry leader when it came to tracking the sales of music. Billboard still exists today and is considered to be one of the most important and influential sources for music industry information in the world. And through it all, it kept its original name because back in the day, Billboard was really all about billboards. I need to play a song here, so uh, let's go with this. In March 2016, this album marched its 350th non-consecutive week when it sold 5,000 copies in seven days. That was good for position number 172 on the Billboard Top 200 album charts. Nirvana, helping us explain why one of the biggest music industry publications is called Billboard, when that publication has nothing to do with actual billboards. Next, you've probably heard the term Tin Pan Alley in connection to uh, something to do with songwriting in the old days, but what is that all about? Well, a hundred years ago, music was divided in two. There were songwriters and there were performers. The songwriters wrote the music and the performers sang or played them. When it came to the commercial music industry, performers almost never, ever wrote their own stuff. That was left to professional songwriters. They went to work every day in offices to crank out tunes for mass consumption by the general public. Because New York City was the center of theater and Broadway, songwriters flocked in that direction. They got jobs with music publishing companies and were paid a salary to come up with tunes which would then be sold as sheet music or pushed to established singers and Broadway producers. By 1885, there was a large concentration of these music publishing companies and their employees along West 28th Street in Manhattan between 5th and 6th Avenue. If you were to walk down that street during those days, all you could hear was the sound of songwriters pounding on pianos coming out of windows everywhere. It is said that a grumpy writer in the New York Herald, a newspaper of the day, Described the sound being made by all these cheap, upright pianos, all playing different songs, was as if someone was banging crappy tin pans together. Hence, Tin Pan Alley. 
Another story says that the name came from a 1930 book about musicians in America and the American music industry, where a journalist observed that an expensive piano in one office had been modified to give it a more percussive sound. He said, that piano sounds like a tin can. I'm going to call my article Tin Pan Alley. Well, whatever the truth, Tin Pan Alley has been used to describe any area where there's a permanent concentration of songwriters and musicians all working on new stuff. For example, there's a short street in London just south of the Oxford tube station called Denmark Street. This has been called the Tin Pan Alley of the UK. This history goes back to the 1920s and involves some music publishers and record label offices and music stores and pubs and rehearsal rooms. For example, number six Denmark Street was where the Sex Pistols first rehearsed and where they made their first demos. They also lived together on the upper floor. This is now considered to be a site of important cultural significance in the UK. Here's one of those demos made at number six Denmark Street. It was recorded in July 1976. A Pistols demo recorded in July 1976 at number 6 Denmark Street in London, which is the Tin Pan Alley of the UK. All right, time for another question that should be asked by more people. If we have MP3s, is there such thing as an MP1 or MP2? Well, yes, there is. In the middle 1980s, a number of research institutes embarked on developing a way of sending digital signals down copper wires. These are called codecs, and were all based on the principles of psychoacoustics. The goal of a codec was to strip out all the material from an audio file that the human ear couldn't hear anyway. That made the file smaller and therefore easier to transmit down the limited capacity of a copper wire. All of these codecs were developed under standards set out by an international committee called the Moving Pictures Expert Group, MPEG for short. Creating such a compression algorithm was tricky stuff. There was an existing technology called Musicam, and 14 different proposals were built deriving from that technology. Skipping to the end of the story, the Moving Pictures Expert Group approved and standardized three versions for audio. There was MPEG Layer 1, MPEG Layer 2, and MPEG Layer 3. MPEG Layer 1, or MP1 for short, worked but didn't offer the best audio quality. It could only compress audio for two channels, something that wasn't very helpful for things like home theater. It didn't work at higher bit rates, and it wasn't backwards compatible for higher quality recordings. MP1 became the audio standard for VHS tapes, which should tell you something. MPEG Layer 2, or MP2, was much better and became the standard used for DVDs, set-top TV boxes, and certain camcorders. However, MP2s were not compatible with MP1 streams, which was fine for most people because MP1 sucked anyway. MP2s, however, were also quite good for broadcasting. Radio stations, which made the switch to hard drive playback systems for their music, often had their music converted from WAV files to MP2. In fact, depending on where you are right now, you may be listening to me encoded as an MP2 file. The MP2 algorithm became the core of MPEG Layer 3, or MP3. This third algorithm became the favorite standard, of course, for transmitting music over the Internet. So, there is your answer. MP1s are old and outdated and rarely used anymore. 
MP2s are now used mostly for industrial applications, and MP3s are everywhere. This is worth playing one more time. When the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany was working on perfecting moving pictures expert group Blair 3, they used a song called Tom's Diner by Suzanne Vega as a test case. The reason they picked this song was that it was a very pure a cappella recording. And unless the algorithm was absolutely perfect, you could hear distortions and glitches in the compression. Researchers listened to versions of this song tens of thousands of times as they tuned and retuned the math to create the best possible audio quality for a compressed music file. It is always nice to see you, says the man behind the counter To the woman who has come in, she is shaking her umbrella And I look the other way as they are kissing their hellos And I'm pretending not to see them, and instead When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. I pour the milk? That song and its use in the development of compression algorithm technology, the one we call MP3, is why we call Suzanne Vega the mother of the MP3. By the way, that song was written in a booth at Tom's Restaurant, a real restaurant, on the corner of Broadway and 112th in New York. That's the same restaurant that served as Monk's Diner in Seinfeld. Okay, enough of that rat hole. When we come back, more questions that people should ask about music. Welcome back. This is a program featuring questions that more people should be asking. We just haven't thought about asking them. Here's another. What is the difference between a turntable, a record player, a phonograph, and a gramophone? They all play flat rotating discs using a tone arm and a stylus. The discs all have groove that spiral into the center from the outside. So what's the difference? The answer is nothing, really. They're all the same. At least they are now. Thomas Edison invented the phonograph, and that word is derived from the Greek sound writing. It played back recordings with a stylus that tracked a groove in a rotating cylinder. That's the brand name, phonograph, under which he marketed this device. A decade or so later, Emil Berliner substituted the rotating cylinder for a spinning disc. He called his device a gramophone from the Greek letter writing. Again, that was a brand name, like Kleenex or aspirin. Both systems existed simultaneously for a decade or so. But by World War I, cylinders were considered inferior to discs. So Edison swapped out his cylinder for his own type of rotating discs, But his discs could not be played on a gramophone and vice versa. Although they looked the same, they were totally incompatible formats. 
There were other machines, too, like the graphophone and the zonophone, but they really didn't go anywhere, so we can discard those. But because he was American and the phonograph had worked its way into the language, people in North America still referred to any record-playing device, any record-playing device, as a phonograph. Meanwhile, in the UK and Europe, they stuck with the name gramophone. However, by the time we got to the late 1920s, people were using the terms phonograph and gramophone interchangeably. And by the time we got to the Great Depression, Edison was actually out of the record business entirely. But in the end, phonograph was the overall winner when it came to the English language. If you have a home stereo, you'll see a function switch that's labeled phono, short for phonograph, even though really what you've got plugged into the thing is more correctly called a gramophone. But gramophone won out in another way. This is why we call those American Music Awards the Grammys. They were almost called the Eddies after Edison, but Grammys, short for gramophone, won out. The final step in this etymology came in the late 1950s and through the 1960s, when high-fidelity audio systems started becoming really popular in homes. The word turntable, or the term record player, sounded way more modern than the old words phonograph and gramophone. So, what's the difference between a turntable, a record player, a phonograph, and a gramophone? Today, nothing. That's from a 2014 album entitled Broke Till Midnight, band on the Epitaph label called Roll the Tanks, and they're singing about record players. The next music question is, why is it that so much music from the 1980s sounds the same? I'm speaking specifically of retro tunes with lots of keyboards and synthesizers. There's something very similar about the textures and timbres of those tones. Here's what I mean. sounds come from the same device, the Yamaha DX7 synthesizer, one of the most important keyboards ever. Those sounds were used in a gazillion songs back in the 80s, and for the reason why, we need to go back a little further. In the early days of keyboard synthesizers, you could only play one note at a time. You couldn't play chords. Then came polyphonic synthesizers, which allowed you to play you know, two, three, four, five, six, whatever, as many notes as you want. Press the keys, you get sounds. But synths sounded very artificial and very robotic, which limited their use. So scientists and musicians set to work to find ways that would make these new synthesizers more natural sounding. The big breakthrough came from a guy named John Chowning at Stanford University. He was fiddling with some electronically generated sine waves, and he figured out a way to make them behave so that they began to sound like real instruments. Long story short, he came up with a technology known as Frequency Modulation Synthesis, or FM Synthesis for short. Now, don't confuse this FM with the FM of your radio. The underlying physics principles are the same, but that's about it. Anyway, 
FM synthesis revolutionized the synthesizer industry. It made these instruments much more useful and much more interesting. And the first company to really take advantage of this was Yamaha, specifically with this model known as the DX7. The DX7 has been called the most important, most popular, and most ubiquitous electronic instrument of the 1980s. Almost every band that used synths had a DX7 somewhere in the mix. Depeche Mode, Nine Inch Nails, Erasure, Pet Shop Boys, The Cure, and a million others. Bon Jovi, Whitney Houston, New Kids in the Block. You get the idea. The bottom line is that we got lots and lots and lots and lots of songs based on the sounds of the DX7 and its descendants. The DX7 and its FM synthesis technology really did become the sound of the 80s, no matter what the genre, including industrial music. With the exception of the drum track, and frankly, I'm not even sure that's not included, this song by Front 242 is pretty much entirely DX7. Front 242 with Headhunter from 1988, a song that takes maximum advantage of the Yamaha DX7 synthesizer, probably the chief keyboard instrument of the 1980s, which helps answer the question, why do so many synth songs from the 80s sound so much the same? But there's another sonic clue that gives away a song as having come from the 80s, and that's the sound of the snare drum. In this case, I'm talking about acoustic snare drums, not anything generated by a machine. And sounds of 80s snares was a break in tradition. In the studio, producers and recording engineers began using microphones differently. In the 50s, 60s, and for most of the 70s, mic placement, where you put microphones around a drum kit, involved a technique called close miking. This was very popular. This meant that you put the pickup of the microphone very close to the drum head, within inches or even less. The goal back then, the aesthetic back then, was to get a pure sound of the stick striking the drum. The result was a tight, sharp crack from the snare. police and driven to tears. That was a close-miked drum kit. The 80s, however, was a time for experimentation in the studio. We had synthesizers and drum machines and samplers all creating sounds that were so new that no one had even imagined that these sounds could have ever existed. And because they were electronically generated, these sounds had no equivalent in the real world. This was exciting. Suddenly, there were all these new sonic frontiers that needed to be explored. And this included how acoustic drums were recorded. The biggest influence on the new 80s snare drum sound was Phil Collins. Now, obviously, this drum sound was a million miles away from the thin, tinny, artificial sound of many of the drum machines of that era. It was big and fat and boomy, and above all, very, very powerful. So, instead of close miking drums, after Phil Collins, producers and engineers began to set up kits in big rooms with hard walls and floors and ceilings. Instead of looking for an environment that was dead quiet with no echo, 
They embraced echo and reverb and long sound decay, which is the time it takes a sound to fade away completely. The sound of the room became as important as the sound of the drums. And one of the best places to record that kind of big, boomy, powerful drum sound was in Studio A of a facility in New York called the Power Station. Producers and engineers would then augment the natural sound of the drums in this room with electronic effects, like gated reverbs, which is an audio processing technique that adds even more power while keeping everything sounding clean. Other engineers would add touches of white or pink noise. And for a while, everybody wanted snare drums that sounded like this. You can actually hear the reverb gate max out when Tony Thompson hits his snare really, really hard. That's the crackle that comes after the crack of the stick. The Power Station featuring Robert Palmer, a couple of guys from Duran Duran, and drummer Tony Thompson. That is an example of the drum sound that was very much in vogue in the 1980s. Some artists still go for that sound, but constant experimentation has led to other styles coming and going. And because we can now do on a laptop what we once needed a $2,000 a day studio to do in the 80s, the possibilities are endless. I have a few more questions that you should be asking coming up, and they involve Ticketmaster and Nickelback. The name of this episode is Music Questions People Almost Never Ask. And now I would like to turn to Ticketmaster. When we buy tickets through them, we're hit with a service charge. In other words, Ticketmaster charges us for the privilege of buying tickets and for the ability to give them money. These can be crazy. In addition to the face value of the ticket, you might be hit with a convenience charge, a facility charge, an order processing fee, and a shipping charge plus tax. Now, let's take a look at these one at a time. Taxes are simple. That's the government wanting their share of the purchase. Fine. A facility fee is something that Ticketmaster collects on behalf of venues that decide to charge you for the privilege of just walking through the door. It's their way of making money from you. After all, they are entitled to a profit. Meanwhile, the venues save money on not having to worry about staffing as many ticket booths or printing the tickets themselves or anything similar that used to be associated with going to a gig. Okay, so what's a convenience fee? This is where Ticketmaster makes most of their money, although this money is sometimes shared with the venue or the promoter or the artist. It's also sometimes called a service charge or an order processing charge, but the term convenience fee is kind of stuck. This covers Ticketmaster's costs and gives them a profit on every ticket sold. I've heard that Ticketmaster takes a standard 4% margin on any tickets they sell, so the higher the face value of the ticket, the higher the convenience charge. Again, they're entitled to make a profit. Ticketmaster considers buying tickets through them, which is almost always an online thing these days, a convenience, since you can do it from wherever they are. And convenience fees can vary greatly because, again, they're based on the face value of the ticket. And finally, there's the delivery charge. If you want printed tickets sent to you in the mail, there's a charge for that. But if you want to just print the tickets at home, you shouldn't have to pay for anything because, well, nothing's delivered except a bunch of electrons over the Internet. But here's the thing. Ticketmaster used to charge you for the privilege of printing your own tickets at home. Why? Because they could. The company's thinking was, well, if we make it possible for you to have instant access to your tickets instead of waiting for them to be mailed to you, that's worth something, right? $2.50, please. Fortunately, though, consumer watchdogs had that little trick squashed. But here's the bottom line. Ticketmaster is the go-to place for tickets for just about everything, and you can try and beat the system, but it is really, really hard. 
Live Red Hot Chili Peppers. And the next time you want to go see them in concert and buy tickets to Ticketmaster, you now know what kind of fees you're going to have to pay and where the money is actually going. All right, one more question. And this might be the toughest question we have to ask. Here it is. Why do so many people profess to hate Nickelback so much? Okay, okay, let's let's step back for a second. Nickelback has millions of fans. They are among the most successful rock bands of the last 20 years. They've sold more than 50 million albums worldwide. They are the second most successful foreign band in the United States behind just the Beatles. And if you look at who they are and what they do and their music, they are a very, very competent, solid rock band. Yes, their music can be formulaic. Yes, they sing a lot about drinking. Yes, there are themes of sex and strippers and hookers and drugs and linear rip on a Saturday night. But, you know, let's face it, so do a lot of other bands. So, here's the question. Why the disproportionate amount of disgust and hate for them? Why all the haters? Why all the anti-Nickelback memes? Why are they such a punchline? And why do radio stations even have no Nickelback policies? For the answer, we probably have to go back to Comedy Central, the American TV channel, back in 2003. The channel ran a promo for a show called Tough Crowd, featuring Colin Quinn. In this promo, he referenced a study that linked violent music to violent behavior. I quote, No one talks about the studies that show that bad music makes bad music violent, but listening to Nickelback makes me want to kill Nickelback. That promo started running on May 5th, 2003, right around when Nickelback was exploding with their Silver Side Up album. It was on its way to selling 10 million copies, and the big single from that album was How You Remind Me. It was the most played song on American radio in the first decade of the 21st century. It was played 1.2 million times, more than any other song in that decade. So... Nickelback was on its way to becoming pretty ubiquitous when that Comedy Central promo started to run. And Nickelback only got bigger and bigger and bigger over the coming years. And apparently, familiarity bred contempt. So that's one explanation. The meme started with this promo. For the other, we have to look at a study that came out of the University of Eastern Finland. This study is entitled... Hypocritical BS performed through gritted teeth, authenticity discourses in Nickelback's album reviews in Finnish media. The whole purpose of this study was to determine why and when people started to hate Nickelback. The conclusion? According to critics, Nickelback isn't genuine enough. Plus, they're too generic in their sound and their image. I quote, Nickelback is too much of everything to be enough of something. They follow genre expectations too well, which is seen as empty imitation, but also not well enough, which is read as commercial tactics and as a lack of a stable and sincere identity. The author of this study, a woman named Sally Antonin, pinpoints when the hate began, at least in Europe. It happened the moment Nickelback allowed their song Rockstar to be used in a TV commercial to sell sofas. This commercial was pulled because it made couches look bigger than they actually were, and they got in trouble with some consumer protection agency. So, there are two theories. Do you believe any of them? I think we need to ask more questions about this because it still doesn't add up for me. And sorry, Nickelback haters, it only makes sense to play that Sofa commercial song now. Deal with it. I'm gonna trade this life for fortune and fame I'd even cut my hair and change my name Cause we all I think it's 
good to be curious. Curiosity leads to two questions. The first is, why are things are the way they are? The second is, why do things have to be the way they are? If you have any questions about music that you think need to be asked by more people, email me at alan at alancross.ca and I'll see if I can dig up some answers. Meanwhile, let's connect on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. I post tons of stuff all the time. I also have a website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. If you go there, you should sign up for the free newsletter, which arrives by 10 a.m. Eastern. It's a, a really a great way to get caught up with all the cool music stuff that's happening. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first? and explain exactly what you guys will be doing. And obviously, here's a hint, if you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music, it's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now now you're just bragging. Corn, <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey. And and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Pop Star. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, and we're two kids from Brampton, Ontario, that uh, went out to you know make art that broke out to the world, and now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay, how are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean. We're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing, you know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker, so it's not 
conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our, of the show was with Dave Myers. Um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about black lives matter. Uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music, uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what, what drew them in to get into this world of, uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment. And, and a lot of times to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what, what went into to make that product. And, and that, that piece of art affair is the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? What kind of <laughs> headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things. Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah, it's it's and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up I came up in the 80s era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos. Right. The MTV much music era watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys being this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at architects pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Architects with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.